Today's episode is sponsored by a new podcast, The Primary Ride Home, the podcast that will keep you up to date on the primary elections without wasting your time. Now, we all know someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Primary Ride Home is dedicated to figuring out who that someone or even multiple someones will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, what the polls say. It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all of the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to nervously refresh your browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Primary Ride Home podcast. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the economic side of immigration, including the effects from low-skilled immigrants and high-skilled immigrants, and then look at an alternate version of how we should debate the issue from the left. Clips today come from Science Versus, Innovation Hub, BEME News, FT Alpha Chat, Robert Reich, and Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf. If you want to find out, using science, how immigrants affect a nation or a state or a town, one way you can do that is to look at places that got rid of a whole lot of immigrants and you can see what happened. Beginning in 2010, a bunch of US states started passing laws that made life hard for immigrants. The goal? To get undocumented people to pick up and leave. One of the strictest laws came from Alabama, and it was named Adios, Bad Hombres. No, of course it wasn't. It was called the Alabama Taxpayer and Citizen Protection Act. And when it came into effect, police were required to verify people's immigration status during routine stops. Schools needed to find out the immigration status of children and their parents. And Americans were prohibited from hiring, renting housing to, and even giving rides to undocumented immigrants. Since the law was passed, it has been weakened quite a bit by the courts. But still, it was strong enough to scare off quite a lot of immigrants. Now, nobody has collected specific data on how many people in total left the state after the law was passed. But estimates using census data and the Pew Research Centre suggest that perhaps some 15,000 immigrants left. Another estimate out of the University of Alabama pegged the number at above 40,000. Let's be conservative and say thousands of immigrants left the state. Speaking of conservative, some politicians were excited about all of these people leaving. Here's Scott Beeson, who was then an Alabama state senator, speaking at a rally not long after the law was passed. It is doing what it is supposed to do. It is putting Alabamians back to work. It is putting Alabamians first, which is the way it should be. And it is saving taxpayers untold dollars. But is it? What really happens when an economy is stripped of its outsiders, when thousands of immigrants pack up and leave? Do Americans get their jobs back? We're heading to Alabama to find out. Welcome to Birmingham. Local time here is about 12.47 Central Time. From Birmingham Airport, I drove to the tiny agricultural town of Cullman with our producer, Heather Rogers. We saw tractors, horses and some cows. Mm, 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 mm. 
Did you do something? Did you provoke the cow? I didn't. They were provoking each other. It was like the best interview I've ever done. <laughs> we were heading to meet farmer Jeremy Calvert, who for years has employed mostly immigrants on his fruit and veggie farm. Jeremy's crops grow in the rolling hills just outside of Cullman. His family has farmed here for six generations, and he loves it. There's no smell like a load of strawberries. When it's when the weather's been dry and the berries are producing good, but the only way I know that anybody can experience that is is they got to be right there at that right exact moment because you can't bottle it up and sell it. Jeremy's got 30 acres, and in summer, when his peach trees are heavy with fruit, he sweats over growing the perfect peach. Nobody wants a little peach. They all have to be big and pretty, you know. Well, that means every limb on every tree has to be gone over, and it takes time and it takes hands to do it. To get those hands, Jeremy pays $10 an hour for workers. And for at least the last decade, he's mostly hired workers from Mexico and Central America. But after Alabama's immigration law was passed, he says those workers, who he calls Spanish, became harder to find. We noticed over a period of months and maybe a year or so, you just don't see as many Spanish folks as you once did. And to Jeremy, the promise from politicians that losing immigrants would open up jobs for Americans didn't really pan out. He didn't get American workers in their place. And without the help, Jeremy had to pick up the slack often working 18-hour days. When you own the operation and the job doesn't get done, the burden falls on one person, and that's me. Now, studies haven't been done in Alabama to see the effect of the law on farmers, but a survey done in Georgia, which is right next door, found that after a very similar law was passed, farms only had about 60% of the workers that they needed. And this is the sort of thing that Sam Addy, an economist at the University of Alabama, has been studying for years. Those jobs uh, uh, and what they pay most unemployed people in the U.S. will not take those jobs. Now you might have noticed, Sam has an accent. Then yes, I am from a small country in West Africa called Ghana. But Sam has lived in Alabama for nearly 20 years, and he was one of the economists who warned the state when Alabama's immigration law was passed that there might be a negative impact on farmers like Jeremy. Immigrants typically go for the jobs that we shun. So the only way you can have people fill those jobs is to bring them in. Bring the immigrants in. Sam points to a study from a few states over in North Carolina that found that in 2011, in the wake of the recession, there were almost half a million unemployed North Carolinians. But... When farmers advertised for more than 6,000 job openings, only seven American workers took those jobs and finished out the season. Yes, seven. And the rest of the jobs? They were filled by immigrants. So why aren't Americans running for this work? Well, Jeremy says that he actually used to have a lot of American workers, what he calls white workers, on his farm. That is until the late 90s. We could still get your average white person then. Well, you move forward to the 2000s and that's just not there anymore. And the data bears some of this out. In 1990, immigrants made up just 7.5% of men working on farms. By 2012, that number had more than tripled. 
but it's not entirely clear why these days Americans don't want to work on farms. Sam from the University of Alabama says that it's partly because Americans have become more educated. More and more Americans are finishing high school and going to college. So now, for the most part, they want to get better jobs and they don't want to work on farms. Jeremy hears this kind of thing around Cullman. Americans typically don't like agriculture. They view it as a lowly position. And it's not only that farm work is seen as a step down. It's that the physical labour is really tough. We heard this from researchers as well as farmers like Jeremy. He's had high school football players give it a go and they struggled. The ones that did make it would come back and tell me this is the hardest thing I've ever done. To run and work out on a football field in the heat of the day is one thing, but to bend your back and pick squash or pick tomatoes all day long in the rain and the heat and the cold, that's a different matter. What did they say? They said, I believe if I can do this, I can do anything. And then they said, and I can't do this. Well, we have we have had some that would stick with us, some because, <laughs> because uh that we knew their parents too well and they were ashamed to quit. (laughs) Unfortunately for farmers like Jeremy, there just aren't enough embarrassed high school football players or other Americans to keep all of Alabama's farms running smoothly. A final reason why Americans might not be picking up the slack, according to research, is because immigrants are more willing to relocate for work, while Americans perhaps aren't so keen to uproot themselves and their families for, say, a job in a rural town. We tried to talk to immigrant farm workers while we were in Alabama, but no one would go on tape. They were all skittish, and they said that because of the Alabama law, they didn't want to draw attention to themselves. Conclusion. For a bunch of reasons, Americans aren't taking certain jobs, like farming. And here, immigrants fill the gaps. In those situations, immigrants are not stealing American jobs. But not all Americans are getting more educated. And the ones who aren't, they still need jobs. So what happens when less educated Americans compete with immigrants for the same jobs? For this question, we spoke to Jenny Hunt, an economics professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and she too has an accent. So how many passports do you have? Uh, I have have three passports. I have uh, Australian, which is the one I originally had, and then I became American before I went to Canada, then I became Canadian. Jenny helped write a major report in 2016 by the National Academy of Sciences on the economic effects of immigrants. It's over 500 pages long, very comprehensive. And it found that, yeah, sometimes when immigrants compete with Americans for work, immigrants get those jobs. But other times, they don't. And FYI, Jenny calls Americans native-born. There'll be winners and losers amongst the native-born. Because when people are vying for the same job, when there's competition, it can lower wages. But... Not all Americans are competing with immigrants. It's all based on the skills and education of the people who are coming to America. Immigrants tend to be either very highly educated or very poorly educated, much more so than the natives. For example, if you're a native-born high school graduate, you're actually not competing that much with immigrants. There actually aren't that many immigrants with exactly high school. So high school dropouts compete with high school dropouts and people with PhDs compete with each other. You can think about it like this. When a prince comes to America, he's not competing with a McDonald's worker. Well, 
Except for in coming to America. I have recently been placed in charge of garbage. Do you have any that requires disposal? And while highly educated Americans can compete with immigrants for jobs, most research shows that people who didn't finish high school are the ones that feel the biggest brunt from immigrants. They're the biggest losers when it comes to immigration. We did come to the consensus also in the report that there is a negative effect of immigration on very unskilled groups of native-born workers. And Jenny says while this can be tough for people losing money each week... It is useful to remember that only 10% of natives are high school dropouts these days, and that's shrinking all the time. In fact, she rechecked the numbers and found that it's actually only 8% of America's population. So it's small, but it's not nothing. It is more people than live in the entire state of New York. But... And this is really important. How much pay do these people actually lose? Because there are reports in the news that some immigrants are having a devastating impact on the wages of some Americans. Are they? Well, this all depends on how you slice up the data because you've really got to do some careful analysis here. Economists have to separate the effect of immigration from other changes in the market, and so the studies vary. They've found that immigrants can drive down wages by 9% to 4% to 3%, all the way down to 0.7%. Put it all together, and the National Academy of Sciences report says that the impact of immigration on the wages of Americans overall in the long run, is quote-unquote very small. And here's the thing. Even with that 8% of high school dropouts, Americans still aren't necessarily losing jobs. Because while there might be more competition, and yes, an immigrant may be hired over an American, those high school dropouts, that 8%, they can actually find new work. I asked Jenny about this. I said, so... Say you meet someone. And they're saying these immigrants coming in, taking our jobs. What would you tell them? Well, so I'd have good news and bad news to tell them. One is that they probably would still be employed because, again, in the U.S. there's really no evidence. Nobody thinks employment rate is lowered by immigrants. And so in the pub, he would probably be telling me about his new job. The bad news is that his new job wouldn't be a very good job. And if he was a high school dropout, his wages may indeed have fallen. Albert Einstein and Andy Grove, a co-founder of Intel, are just two of the Jewish emigres who escaped Europe in the middle of the 20th century and boosted American innovation. And we wanted to know, has anyone actually tried to measure how much science in this country was shaped by high-skilled immigrants who came here during and after the war? And it turns out, someone has. In my research, I try to figure out what encourages creativity and innovation. That's Petra Moser. She's an economics professor at NYU. So I've looked at patent laws. I've looked at copyright laws. And one component of that that seems very important is human capital, uh, which essentially is just good people who know stuff. And high-skilled immigrants are precisely those types of people. Before World War II, America was not the beacon for scientific research that it is today. In fact, Moser says, American scientists sometimes had to learn German to keep up with the latest research. 
But that changed because of the war. Tens of thousands of German Jewish emigres came to the U.S. Among them were some of the world's best scientists, like Einstein. But there were also thousands of others who toiled away anonymously in research labs. And once they came here, most of them did not have access to high-profile jobs. We shouldn't forget, and I think what's often whitewashed out of the historical accounts is that this was also a period of very vivid anti-Semitism in the United States. So when uh, German-Jewish immigrés came to the United States, typically they wouldn't get the great jobs. Uh, For example, DuPont uh, was really desperate for highly skilled chemists, but when they got some really good ones, they said they couldn't put them in prominent positions because they looked too Jewish. That doesn't mean the scientists weren't influential, though. And Moser tried to figure out just how much they contributed to American innovation. Her question was pretty simple. If you were a post-World War II American scientist, did having a whole new batch of immigrants around you make you more productive? Because essentially, if you think about this, a the arrival of a German immigre or any immigre has two opposing effects. One is that if there's now an emigre, I have to compete with that emigre. So I may not be able to publish my papers, for example. Another one is that I can now learn from this new person and I can work with them. And so what we find is that second effect dominated overall so that the American inventors became more productive after the German Jewish emigres arrived in the United States. Basically, scientists in America, though Moser looks specifically at chemists, started filing more patents. They were inventing more stuff. So what we can do here is we can look at the people, at the American scientists who worked with a German Jewish emigre, and we can look at what happens to their patenting activity. And what we see is that those people actually become more productive. And that pattern of the co-inventors and the co-inventors of the co-inventors becoming more productive matches very closely to the overall increase in patenting that we see in the United States. So what that tells us is that it was not the German-Jewish immigrants themselves that increased invention, but it was what they taught other people and what enabled other American scientists to do that caused this increase in U.S. invention. The boost lasted, and it has reverberated over many decades. So now it's really the United States that's the center of innovation. And so even now, many extremely good European scientists come to the United States to study. So it's no longer the other way around when before the war, American scientists would go to Europe to do their studies. Now it's the other way around. There are a million international students in the U.S. at the moment. Many of them are studying a branch of science. And if we could keep them here after they graduate, that would likely have major financial upsides. Jennifer Hunt is an economics professor at Rutgers University and the former chief economist at the Department of Labor under President Obama. She has also looked at how high-skilled labor affects U.S. innovation, and she also studies patent productivity. Generally, she says high-skilled immigrants in the U.S., so we're talking college graduates, but some people may have grad degrees, are generating more patents than their American-born peers. The foreign-born are actually twice as likely to patent as natives. She says there are different potential reasons for this. One is, 
it's tough to immigrate to another country. So the skilled workers who actually make it to America may be gritty and ambitious. But Hunt thinks there are problems with that logic. It turns out that that gap is explained by uh, the concentration of the foreign-born in science and engineering. So it's not that they're just inherently more innovative compared to Americans who sort of studied the same thing. If you're wondering why foreigners study science in greater numbers, it may be because science is a universal language. Science and engineering, especially science, but also engineering, are the same in all countries. And furthermore, you don't really need very good language skills uh, in order to be a scientist or an engineer. That's not, uh, at, at least when you're doing your innovative work, a different issue is if you want to be promoted into management, that's something quite different. So actually, if we're talking about earnings, that's something different. But for innovation, uh, language is really not the emphasis. But of course, just because America is currently the premier place to get a degree in science or engineering doesn't mean that that's going to be true forever. An estimated 17,000 students in the U.S. are originally from one of the seven countries on President Trump's banned list. And some of those bans may be completely lifted in a few months. We don't really know. Odds are, though, that many of those students are studying and doing research in a science or technology-related field. If they decide to study somewhere else, that would be another country's gain. Once again, Petra Moser. So if we restrict immigration and to the extent that this limits the immigration of scientists, it could help revert the balance so that U.S. no longer is a leader in science but becomes a follower again. And then the other thing to think about is that they're network effects. So scientists like to be around other scientists to do their work. And typically, you know, personality, I would say, mostly doesn't matter that much. Uh, ethnicity doesn't matter. What really matters is how smart somebody are. So lots of us don't have the best social skills, but we're smart, right? So in some way, it tells you that the personal characteristics of the people around you are just not that important. What's really important is that you can work with them and that they're smart and that they know stuff. And then, then you can combine that and make create new innovations. And I think in, in that sense, anything that discourages these types of immigrants from coming here or from staying here, say, after they finish graduate school, is going to hurt U.S. science and innovation. And through that, if it hurts U.S. innovation, it's also going to hurt growth in the long run. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help you take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon, but now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks. Self-image is a genuinely important thing, so it is no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray, covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results, gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. And what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi-tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best of the left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use the code LEFT. 
all across the world, no issue has animated voters and contributed to the rise of nationalist movements more than immigration. It was one of the main reasons for Brexit. Other European countries, like Hungary and Austria, have elected vocal proponents of closed borders. Donald Trump used the topic to launch his presidential campaign, and U.S. voters have identified it as the number one issue in the 2018 midterms. The topic intertwines a number of different threats, cultural identity, security, law enforcement, attitudes towards refugees. I'm not going to talk about any of that. I'm interested in money. I'm interested in understanding how immigrants impact the economy. Immigration's impact on the job market seems seductively simple. If an immigrant gains a job, that means someone else lost it. One person's gain is another person's pink slip. Likewise, it's easy to understand how native-born workers might see their paychecks shrink when newcomers enter the economy. That is, since immigrants increase the supply of available labor, employers can be picky. They can reduce wages because so many folks are looking for a job. Consider the immigration situation in the United States. Harvard labor economist George Borjas points out that a disproportionate percentage of U.S. immigrants have low skills. In fact, immigrants have increased the size of the low-skilled workforce by about 25% in the last two decades. Therefore, low-skilled native-born Americans are either getting crowded out of the job market or their income is disappearing. Borjas asserts that competition from immigration has caused high school dropouts somewhere between $800 and $1,500 annually. That's a huge number since they make just $25,000 a year on average. That's why Stephen Camerata, director of research for the Center of Immigration Studies, told me immigration has the biggest impact on the least fortunate. And remember, this is a demographic already under siege by trends like outsourcing and automation. So it seems like the most vulnerable Americans are hurt by immigrants. This easy to understand frame of the economic impact of immigration is both very popular and very incomplete. Professor Giovanni Perry, an economist at UC Davis, told me it's an example of partial equilibrium reasoning. And when you factor in the other economic effects of immigration, when you reach general equilibrium, you'll see that immigrants are actually beneficial to a country's economic health. For starters, you got to keep in mind that there's not a finite amount of jobs. As immigrants come to the economic table, they're not stealing a piece of the pie, they're growing the pie. If a foreign doctor moves to a new country and opens a practice, for example, that can create opportunities for nurses, administrators, janitors, etc. It's also good for contractors who build doctor's offices, the realtors who sell them, and the service companies that maintain them, the electricians, plumbers, cleaners. You get the point. Now, I know that not all immigrants are doctors, especially not in the mind's eye of your average voter. But the facts reveal that U.S. immigrants are more likely to have a college degree than the native-born, and they're twice as likely to start a business, which of course creates jobs. This includes some of the biggest companies in the world. Google co-founder Sergey Brin immigrated from Russia to the co-founders of YouTube are foreign-born. But it's not just a few high-profile outliers. In 2015, a quarter of all people in U.S. STEM fields were foreign-born. These are the technologists who developed the type of breakthroughs that can create jobs, improve productivity, and send GDP soaring. One famous study estimated that 50% of economic growth in the U.S., the U.K., France, West Germany, and Japan between 1950 and 1993 was a result 
of increased research intensity. And keep in mind, in 2015, more than half of all graduate students at American universities in math, computer science, and engineering were from abroad. Data reveals that the majority of PhD students stay here. No wonder then that Neeraj Kaushal, a professor of social policy at Columbia University, told me immigrants to the U.S. are vital to the innovation economy. She said America's stellar higher education system is a magnet for the world's best and brightest. And when they relocate here, they bring in all this potential. Since 2000, 33 of the 85 Americans who won Nobel Prizes in chemistry, medicine, and physics were immigrants. But you don't have to be a brainiac to contribute to growth. Because low-skilled workers, even those that enter the country illegally, can bring economic benefits with them. For instance, the work done by undocumented laborers in the U.S. is usually complementary to the type of work done by natives. This is a fancy way of saying that immigrants plug holes in the labor market. There's all these types of vital jobs, from fruit picking to house cleaning, that many native-born Americans are simply not interested in. Maybe they're overqualified because of their education. Maybe they're too old. After all, the median age of Americans has been creeping up, and labor-intensive work is the domain of the young. Plus, interviews with business owners reveal that low-skilled immigrants have the reputation for outworking the native-born competition. Two sociologists dub low-skilled immigrants compliant workaholics. Another self-exploitative advantage, whereas natives can be reluctant to relocate for a new job, immigrants, by definition, are clearly willing to travel for work. That mobility is an asset in a dynamic economy. And Perry told me, where immigrants go, money follows. Consider, if a farm hires a bunch of immigrant workers, perhaps the farm then has to buy additional equipment. That's a boon for the equipment company. That company, in turn, might look to add new staff. And keep in mind, new immigrants don't just sit on their money, they're consumers, too. So maybe a local entrepreneur near the farm opens up a restaurant to feed the newcomers. That means new jobs for cooks, waiters, and food suppliers. In short, there's a big positive ripple effect. To be clear, this ripple effect might not reach everyone. As that data from Borjas alludes to, if you're a native that has a redundant skill set to recently arrived immigrants and therefore are easily replaced by them, it's probably cold comfort to know that the overall economy is growing while you're worse off. Especially so since a lot of the economic gains are going to the employer that just fired you. Think about it. If an immigrant is willing to provide cheaper labor than you are, that means your boss can pocket the difference between your old wages and the immigrant's cheaper rate. Maybe some savings get passed along to consumers in the form of lower prices, but a lot of money can just pad the bottom line. That's why Borjas claims that immigration just turns out to be another income redistribution program, something that can fuel income inequality. However, there's an alternative view. Perry told me that instead of pushing native workers out of the job market or towards shittier pay, immigrants often push them up the job ladder. A 2009 study he conducted showed that as immigrants filled manual labor jobs, say a construction gig, many native-born people previously in those positions took on higher-paying roles where their language skills gave them an advantage. So a native-born construction laborer becomes a foreman, a field hand becomes a coordinator. Heidi Shearholz, currently at the Economic Policy Institute and formerly the chief economist to the U.S. Secretary of Labor, told me there's a bit of irony here, though. If native-born people could differentiate themselves from immigrants through better language and coordination skills, the group that most feels the negative economic effects of immigrants 
is previously settled immigrants. The old immigrants and the new immigrants wind up competing for jobs. Now, the big question that remains is, do all these immigrants drain government resources? When it comes to welfare benefits and things like public education, do they take more than they pay in? This varies from country to country. European countries tend to be more generous with welfare benefits, so immigrants are more likely to be a fiscal drain, particularly in countries where immigrants face legal obstacles when they try to find work. In the US, the National Academy of Sciences concluded that first-generation immigrants are more costly to governments than native-born people, mostly because they send their kids to public schools but don't have a high enough taxable income to contribute a ton. But the children of immigrants eventually become net contributors. In fact, they go on to contribute more than native-born Americans. The study concludes the impact of immigrants on government budgets are generally positive at the federal level but remain negative at the state and local level. This underscores an important point that Professor Koshel made to me. Our perspective on the economics of immigration really depends on what angle we take. If we narrow in on specific workers in specific industries, yes, there's evidence that immigrants have negative economic effects. If we look at communities in an isolated moment in time, yeah, immigrants might take more than they give from a fiscal standpoint. But if we take a broader view, if we step back and watch the issue play out over time, then the economic benefits are much more clear. The math in its totality works. The frustrating part is politics are short term. Voters don't often think ahead. They want their needs addressed now. So politicians offer short term band-aids with no worry about future implications. But it's important to remember, patience often leads to surprising dividends. Okay, so Jennifer, I, I now want to read from some of the facts in the report itself that give a sense of immigration trends over the last 20 years and then get your thoughts on that. So from the report, I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing here, but immigrants climbed from about 9% of the population in 1995 to about 13% of the population by 2014. To put that in, I guess, easier to understand terms, that's roughly one out of every 11 people to one out of almost every eight people. Okay. Uh, in overall numbers or in absolute numbers, that's 24 and a half million immigrants to about 42 and a half million out of a total population of, I think, 320 million now. I'm not exactly sure, but it's, it's right around there. Um, but as a share of the labor force, immigrants went from 11% to 16% in that same amount of time. So again, in the last 20 years. Now, the pace of legally admitted immigrants per year became higher at about 2001, and that's continued. We've been absorbing about a million legally admitted immigrants per year. But in terms of undocumented or unauthorized immigrants, I think this might surprise a lot of people, but the level has been roughly flat since the late 2000s, hovering at around uh, 11 million and change. So every year, about three or 400,000 people leave and three or 400,000 people come in. And so it'll fluctuate within a range of a couple of hundred thousand sometimes, but it's actually been flat after a period of steadily climbing. Can you talk about whether or not historically 
that is a lot of immigration for a country to absorb. Uh, and I guess how you think the American economy has, in fact, absorbed that immigration? Uh, that's a, a, a big question. But the first thing I'd like to do is to put the immigration to the U.S. in international context. Yes. So the U.S., because it's a very big country, admits a lot of immigrants in absolute number. But in terms of a share of the population or even the labor force, compared to other high-income countries, the U.S. is right in the middle of the pack. So the, partly for historical reasons, the U.S. thinks of itself as a high-immigration country. It's probably more accurate to think of it as a middle-immigration country. So Only if, high in absolute numbers, but not exactly. in, as a share of the uh, total population. Uh, who, who, by the way, is higher? So lots of countries are higher. Of the slightly larger countries, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada are considerably higher. Depends exactly how you measure it, but you can think of Australia as having about double the immigration uh, relative to its population that the U.S. does. And in terms of who's similar to the U.S., Germany is actually similar to the U.S. And in fact, if you look at the famous year 2015 when Germany received so many asylum seekers, uh, Germany actually in inflows had about triple compared to its population that uh, that the U.S. did, although that was an outlying year. In terms of the uh, the mechanisms of adjustment, there are quite a few. So one is that the sorts of goods and services that the U.S. produces are influenced by immigration. So one example is that uh, the apparel industry remained in the U.S. for longer than you would have thought. Because of unskilled immigration, it remained worthwhile for longer to make clothes in the U.S., despite uh, the availability of uh, either offshoring locations or new technology to automate things. Because of lower wages that were paid to uh, immigrant workers. That's right. Technology then is another channel of adaptation. So there are different technologies that one can use and which one one chooses as an employer depend on what labor force is at hand. So another perfect example of this is agriculture. So uh, technology is progressing quite fast in agriculture, but not nearly as fast as it would have done were there not a big supply of agricultural workers from abroad. Is it possible, though, that the adjustment there could have also come from trade. In other words, if the immigrant laborers who worked in the agricultural sector couldn't be found because there were lower migration levels, uh, that the U.S. would have ended up importing the same foods or the same goods instead of producing them at home. It wouldn't necessarily have been an adjustment via better you know, productivity growth or better technological adjustment. It seems like that also is a possibility, but that we don't quite know what the counterfactual would look like there. Absolutely. And that's Im implicit in the changing of the sector. So the apparel industry, for example, if you don't make it in the U.S., you import it from abroad, uh, either from companies that are related to U.S. companies or not related to U.S. companies. In the case of agriculture specifically, some of the things grown in the southern United States could be grown in Mexico. It's interesting to see that there the preferred evolution seems to be automation rather than uh, importing I want to make one other point about uh, technological progress that's slightly at a tangent, but it's very important and we haven't mentioned it yet. It's not quite an adjustment mechanism, but one of the ways in which immigration can influence the U.S. is through innovation. And this has been a subject of my own research. So if you increase actually a population generally, but especially if you increase the population of highly educated people, you're likely to have more innovation, just more people, more ideas, more education, more ideas. And innovation is 
one of the important components to growth in the economy. So the others are just increases in the number of workers, which immigrants influence directly too, as do native fertility rates. Another is adopting new capital, so machines and computers. And that's something that firms will do when they anticipate having a larger population. And then finally, technological progress, which is, I've shown, influenced by high-skilled immigration, that influences actually not just the level of GDP, but its growth. So it's something that will continue and compound in the future. So I found that immigrants increase patenting per capita. This is something we do talk about in the report as well. And that we would expect not just to give a one-time increase in GDP, but to have the growth rate increase. So increases in GDP for year after year. And that's something that could, in principle, offset declines in wages for the least skilled. So they may have the wages decline directly from competition from low-skilled immigrants. It could be offset by this faster growth. From what we've seen in the study so far, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, what's interesting to me about that is that to use, again, just a simple supply and demand framework, if you have more high-skilled immigrants, okay, you have more specialization, right? That just seems like an obvious result. Uh, and so it's not the case that Econ 101 fails you every time and that you need to go much beyond it. Sometimes the simple stuff you learned early on still applies. That's exactly right. And in fact, there was a consensus um, for the report and a consensus more generally amongst economists, as I said, that GDP per native is unlikely to be hurt and will likely gain from immigration and they will gain more when the immigration is different from the native workers, when the immigrants have different skills for the reason that you gave. When the skills are different, people specialize more in what they're best at. That makes the economy more efficient. That means that there's a bigger pie to share amongst everyone, including the natives. If you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. Donald Trump has opened the floodgates to lies about immigration. Here are the myths and the facts. Myth, immigrants take away American jobs. Wrong. Immigrants add to economic demand and thereby push firms to create more jobs. Myth, we don't need any more immigrants. Baloney. The U.S. population is aging. 25 years ago, each retiree in America was matched by five workers. Now, for each retiree, there are only three workers. 
Without more immigration, in 15 years, the ratio will fall to two workers for every retiree, which is not nearly enough to sustain our retiree population. Myth. Immigrants are a drain on public budgets. Bull. Immigrants pay taxes. The Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy released a report this year showing undocumented immigrants paid $11.8 billion in state and local taxes in 2012. And their combined nationwide state and local tax contributions would increase by another $2.2 billion under comprehensive immigration reform. Myth. Legal and illegal immigration is increasing. Wrong again. The net rate of illegal immigration into the U.S. is less than zero. The number of undocumented immigrants living in the U.S. has actually declined from 12.2 million in 2007 to 11.3 million now, according to the Pew Research Center. Don't listen to the demagogues who want to blame the economic problems of middle class and poor on new immigrants, whether here legally or illegally. The real problem is the economic game is rigged in favor of a handful at the top who are doing the rigging. We need to pass comprehensive immigration reform, giving those who are undocumented a path to citizenship. Scapegoating them and other immigrants is shameful. And it's just plain wrong. I want to talk to you about today is immigration. And the immigration issue has become the dominant political burning point, you might say, around the world. The Brexit decision, this historic decision of a vote in England to withdraw from the European community, was heavily shaped by hostility to European immigrants in England from the continent to the little island, and reactions to that. Mr. Trump announced his candidacy for president with a diatribe against Mexican immigrants and made the anti-immigrant push a central part not only of his campaign, but of his presidency ever since. Recent elections in Italy brought to power in that country the fourth largest in Europe, an anti-immigrant politician working very hard to make that the centerpiece of his leadership of Italy. And most recently, an election in Sweden, a country long famous for welcoming immigrants, saw the rise of a new political party, well, it was old. It was an old right-wing political party that got 2, 3, 4% of the vote. But suddenly it got 16 or 17% of the vote because it became a big leader of the anti-immigration movement in that part of the world. And in other European countries, similar stories could be told. I want to pose a question. Why have traditionally extreme right-wing political parties and movements found in the bashing of immigrants an effective tool to get voters, to get members, and to get lots of media attention? Why have even some 
relatively obscure politicians, Boris Johnson in England, Donald Trump, for that matter, in the United States, and so on. Why have they been able uh, to get a new chance at political power and leadership by making anti-immigration a central part of their politics? I want to give an answer to explain that. And then I also want to talk about what an alternative vision of the problem of immigration might look like. So let's first answer the question why the right wing has made so much hay, if you like, out of this. Well, first of all, attacking immigrants is a kind of simple story to tell. If people are suffering economic decline, which they are extremely in Britain, significantly in the United States, extremely in Italy, significantly in Sweden, and so on, if the crash of 2008 has left deep scars and deep suffering, well, blaming immigrants is a nice, convenient story. Immigrants, after all, being desperate, running away from their homes where they grew up, where they have their families, their schools, their relationships, their jobs, their religions, their ethnicities, to go to a new strange country, those people are willing to work for very little money because they're desperate, so they're poor. And the story can be told, they're taking your job away. You're not going to get paid what you used to. You may not have a job at all. Meanwhile, the immigrants are coming and taking your jobs, as if the employer doesn't give jobs, but that the worker takes them. But we'll put that aside. Then there's a further simple story. Being poor, living in poor neighborhoods, immigrants may sometimes qualify for social services provided to poor people in poor neighborhoods. So the story can be told, oh, see, you're being taxed, you native person, to provide services to those immigrants. In general, the story is the immigrant is somehow the cause of your difficulties. And if only you could get rid of the immigrant, well, then your economic problems would be solved. And of course, this can tap into the old insider-outsider kind of way of thinking about the world. We, inside the village, know and trust each other. People from the outside, you always have to suspect. And here's a final reason. The real culprit to the economic problems of people in Europe, England, Sweden, Italy, United States, is a capitalist system that doesn't provide the jobs and incomes people need. It's a system that has moved jobs to faraway countries where they can get away with paying lower wages. It's the people who have replaced jobs with robots, with artificial intelligence, with computers, all in the name of making more money because that's how this system works. That's where your real problems come from. But it would be dangerous for the people who sit on top of the capitalist system if the suffering caused by it was blamed on it. So it is always important in times of economic decline of the sort now afflicting Europe and the United States to come up with something else to blame. 
to deflect the potential of anger against the system to be focused elsewhere. And the immigrant, the other, the different person or people is a good target. It's been used many times in history. But now let me turn to the question of how people who see at least some of this have reacted. Let's call them, for lack of a better term, the broadly defined left wing of political points of view in America and Britain, Italy, Sweden, and so on. Their first reaction has often been to see the cruelty in all of this, to see the discrimination to point out that all of these countries have welcomed immigrants for hundreds of years, that places like the United States are literally a country of immigrants since we eradicated the people who were here before the Europeans came. And so there's something amiss in suddenly blaming the very immigration that made the country what it is. And then you get the next step, a kind of blame, a blame of the native people who are anti-immigrant for being intolerant, for being racist, for being discriminatory. And of course, this only makes those folks angrier. They already believe that their jobs and incomes and taxes are the fault of immigrants. Now you're blaming them for being critical or hostile. They're going to get even more upset. Well, then what should the left position be? What should it have been all along? Let me offer some suggestions. First, it is crucial for the left to go right after the premise here, to make it clear that blaming immigrants is a cynical, cruel, and inaccurate assessment of what the problem is. The United States is a nation of 325 million people, give or take. The number of undocumented immigrants, the focus of all the upset in this country, may be 12 million, give or take a little bit, because the counting is obviously difficult. All right, you don't need an advanced degree in economics to understand that the difficulties plaguing Tens of millions of Americans in a country of 325 million Americans cannot be explained by anything having to do with 12 million undocumented immigrants who are the poorest paid in our society, who live in awful conditions a large portion of the time, who are excluded from lots of public services anyway, etc. It's crazy. It's absurd, it's mean and cruel, and is wrong. That has not been made clear anywhere like it could have and should have. But here's the more important point. Here's a program that the left could advance. It could say the following. The way to welcome an immigrant is the way to treat everybody in this country who isn't an immigrant as well a guaranteed job at a decent income that you and your family can live with to enjoy the so-called American dream, to send your kids to college, all the rest. If we provided 
full employment as a right of everybody in this country, every native and any immigrants that we choose to let in. We wouldn't have the competition over jobs. We wouldn't have the competition over social services. We wouldn't have the setting of native to immigrant against each other in the awful pattern that has happened so often in American history. We would welcome immigrants the way they ought to be, the way that Christian and other religions say you should help the less fortunate around you. And how to pay for it? Well, let's see. We have an enormous wealth concentrated in the top of our society. The taxation of that wealth so that we have less inequality can raise more than enough money to provide the jobs and the job guarantees and the full employment that would be a far better arrangement for managing immigration. And if pushed, the left should say the following. If wealthy folks do not want to do their share of bringing decent lives, both to the American people and the immigrants, then let's not have immigration. But let's not bring immigrants in cram them into poor neighborhoods, provide them with inadequate education and housing, put them in a competitive situation with domestic laborers, and then have those who are wealthy who are making extra money by paying those low wages do a tisk-tisk and tell the rest of the society how they ought to behave. They should pay for what it is that in the end benefits them as much as it does anyone else with the difference they have the ability to pay. It would be a different program. It would make immigration something that goes together with taking care of the people here and making those at the top pay for it, which is what we should have done long ago and would be a much better way to handle this situation. We've just heard clips today, starting with Science Versus, which focused on low-skill workers and the case study of Alabama farm workers. Innovation Hub then focused on, naturally, innovation and high-skilled immigrants. BEME News did a broad-spectrum breakdown of how people often think about immigration versus how they should think about it. FT Alpha Chat spoke with Jennifer Hunt about the effects of immigration on the dynamics of the labor force. Robert Reich succinctly busted four of Trump's biggest immigration myths. And finally, we just heard Professor Richard Wolff on Economic Update laying out both the right-wing politics of stoking fear about immigration and some suggestions on how the issue should be approached from the left. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips getting even further into some of the weeds discussing the ins and outs of how economists see immigration. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, still consider supporting our work and getting the show ad-free for only two bucks a month. 
Though, of course, if all that sounds like chum change to you, we have higher levels as well and will happily take as much cash as you care to throw our way. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Your input is incredibly valuable. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, We'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Jack from Georgia. I wanted to respond to the primaries episode where you had clips from um, the Real News Network, uh, Young Turks, a couple other shows. That was a good episode, but I do think it kind of, and you know, it touched on it a bit with the Real News Network, but that the first clip, and I can't remember who it was, but it was kind of using the language of, these guys are very liberal, and these guys are a little bit liberal. And I think, if I'm not wrong, they said that uh, AOC was more liberal than Bernie Sanders, and I thought I was... And they used identity politics as the reason. And it just made me a little bit mad, because I feel like that was, that was essentially framing the issue in the same way that a lot of centrist Democrats did in 2016 and 2015, in that they cynically said, well, Bernie Sanders is a white man, therefore he is not as progressive as Hillary Clinton, which is complete BS, because it's really looking at him individually versus his policies. So I wanted to say that, you know, I think a big component of all this is that class is important, obviously, you know, it doesn't discount race, but I think one of the big divides between centrists and those on the actual left is that we recognize power and class do play a role on that. You can't solely rely on talking about race because a poor black person and a rich black person still have, you know, they have differences because someone who's wealthy can get out of jail. Uh, maybe, okay, maybe both, both two, you know, two black people, maybe they might both be stopped by the police, but the person with money is going to have a much better chance of getting by in America than the person without money. Uh, secondly, I wanted to suggest um, both to, to you and to V, and maybe you have had this, this voice on the program, I'm not sure if you have, but this is how we recently had on Glenn Ford of the Black Agenda Report, and he was talking about um, reparations, and he kind of touched on the 2020 election, but I would recommend going back and listening to that, I can't remember the exact episode, but it was a, a recent episode of This Is Hell, um, which I know you've had on, you've had clips from there, that show on uh best left but anyway uh check that out black agenda report and uh, also this is hell has been doing a lot of great coverage they've been uh reading out a lot of stuff to do with beto's um previous work i guess you'd say in the, the hacker group which is kind of hilarious and strange but uh thanks very much take care uh keep the good work bye Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, uh, on on the topic of leaving messages, that's more or less uh, what I want to chat about today, rather than talking about something maybe we just heard about. 
because honestly, I don't have that much to add to today's topic. I'm not an immigration economics expert. I don't have much to add uh, other than the research I've done and the content I've presented. So I can't talk about that. And rather than uh, continue on a com- conversation maybe that we'd been having in the voicemail section, uh, I want to give you a glimpse into the future. So uh, as you have probably heard, I run a poll on Patreon each week, usually in the weekend, running into maybe the beginning of the week or so. It's available to everyone. I would love you to take part in it. You know, dozens of people vote, but I would love for that to be hundreds or thousands of people voting. Uh, it, it's a huge benefit to the show to get insights from real listeners who really want to help shape the show and and guide what topics end up being covered. So anyway, uh, those polls happen each weekend, and the voting has just come in, as I'm speaking to you, uh, not for this week or, or later this week, but for next week. And I, I can tell you, I can give you a little glimpse into the future that we're going to get back into the primary election. And so this is a conversation we had a little bit before. I think it's fair to assume this is going to come up again and again, sort of off and on in a, in a rolling fashion for the next year and a half or so. So to give you a glimpse at the, the angle I'm taking for this, this next episode, of course, the big news recently is that Joe Biden has finally announced we've all been waiting with bated breath and we can all finally exhale and rest easy knowing that Uncle Joe is in the race. So I'm curious, I'm not sure how to ask this question other than I, like, I want people's general thoughts and perspective about the race so far. And I mean, like, take that from your personal perspective, your values, your interests, your preferred candidates, whatever, and let me know how you think the race is going. Like, so, so, so sort of a standard thought uh, that's been going around is, okay, so all the female candidates announced early, and they got some press for that. You know, they weren't just ignored when they announced, so that was good. But then when the men announced, the women sort of got swept to the side a bit. And now, all of a sudden, it's sort of looking like the white male candidates are getting a lot of excitement and like Joe Biden was polling ahead of everyone else when he wasn't even in the race yet, things like that. So, you know, that, that's sort of a, a mainstream line of commentary that, that's been going on recently. Um, but but I would love to hear your thoughts on on sort of anything, the the, the, the Beto O'Rourke's, the Buttigieg's, the Biden's. Uh, how do you feel about these candidates getting as much attention as they're getting, getting as much excitement as they're getting? What does that say about the country and patriarchy and white supremacy. What does it say? I don't know. As I said, take the, take the question as you like it. And, uh, I will be listening to your comments. It, they may even help shape the development of next week's show as I'm putting it together. At the very least, we'll have comments from you to, uh, to, toss in with the show itself when it finally goes out and we'll kick off conversation in earnest from there at least that's what i'm guessing may happen so as always the number to dial 202-999-3991 i'm trying to not you know 
put my thumb too firmly on the scale to uh, uh, shape the conversation before it has a chance to to breathe. So really, I just want to hear what you have to say from whatever perspective you want to say it on whatever specific topic as relates to the election that you want to focus on. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.